That's John 17, verses 1 through 26. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world or for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. So the way I'd like to approach it, I just want to make these, this division in, in two, okay? So just two kind of big points uh, today but lots of subpoints as we get into it. I want to ask two questions. The first one is, what did Jesus pray for? 
What was he praying for in this great prayer before his crucifixion? And the second question would be, how did God answer that prayer? So what did he pray for and how did God answer his prayer? So I'll spend the majority of my time on the first point, okay? And we'll stay pretty close to the text, so if you want to keep your Bibles open, uh, it would be helpful to you. Even if you just read this chapter without paying a lot of attention, just kind of skim over it, even if you do that, you should be able to see what the great focus of this prayer is. It's all about God's glory. You can't really read a sentence, more than a sentence, not to see the word glory or glorify mentioned here. Jesus seems to be focused on God's glory. So I want to start kind of with this big picture, what is God's glory, and then we'll zero in and see uh, particular petitions that he has for the church and how the glory of God plays itself out in the church and in the world. But first, we need to answer the question, what is glory? Because you hear this word said a lot in church. Most of our worship songs have the word glory in them. Lots of scripture passages that are read have the word glory in them. But what is it? Well, to put it simply, glory is the expression of who God is. It's the expression of who God is. Glory is our experience of his presence. Glory is the knowledge of God. What I'm driving at is that God is the way he is, and then he expresses himself to us, and that expression, that our, our experience of him is his glory. So, for example, in Isaiah 6, which, by the way, is the passage we'll be preaching on a, on Unity Sunday in uh, October, where you will have a guest preacher here, and I'll be at a different church we picked this passage, Isaiah 6, which is about God's glory as sort of the unifying force behind our efforts in North County. But in, in Isaiah 6, the seraphim, these angelic beings, worship God and they proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then they say, the whole earth is full of his glory. So they say God is holy, and that is, that's who God is. That's God. They're basically saying, God, you are God. You are this way. But then they say, our experience of you is your glory. The whole earth is full of your glory. The knowledge of God, the presence of God. So they're both saying God is who he is and that we are experiencing him as he is. God's glory in Scripture is often described as brightness, as light, brilliance, radiance. You may remember we, we talked about Moses a few weeks ago. His face was shining because he saw God. He interacted with God, and, and, and that reflection of God's brilliance was, was on his face. Think of God's glory as the radiance of his nature. Now, he remains who he is, whether he expresses himself or not, but as he expresses himself, and we receive that, that's, that's his glory. That's our experience of his glory. We can say that the glory of God is his godness, is his nature displayed for our experience. So to glorify God, then, is to point to who he is, to draw attention to him, to put a spotlight on him. The glory of God is God simply being God, 
showing himself to us, acting according to his nature. So whenever you know, Christians get together and we worship, and some of us may say, I felt the glory of God. What we mean is that we, we sensed God's presence. We sensed his influence on our lives. There was something that happened spiritually as we sang, as we prayed, as we read scripture. Somehow we've encountered God, and that encounter is his glory. We're, we're accepting him. We're receiving his revelation. We're experiencing him. That's his glory. So let me give you two examples that, and not, as you know, no human examples can really match what we're trying to explain, right? So, so keep that in mind. But I think these two examples help us understand what glory is and how it happens. Several years ago, ago when we still lived in Chicago, uh, the dark period of our lives when we lived in Chicago before we discovered this place. Uh, Jillian and I went to a, a poetry reading, uh, and we were in a, an auditorium waiting for the poet, uh, Mary Carr, to come and read some poetry to us and speak to us. And, and the presenter came and read her bio and listed her accomplishments. And then he said, folks, you are in for a treat tonight. She's in rare form. I remember that phrase, she's in rare form. And I think what he meant was not that she's going to act strangely and out of character, that she's going to start reading prose to us, no. What he meant is that she's on, she's in the zone, she's, she's being herself, that, that, that she is engaging and the evening was wonderful. She was very engaging. She was very witty. And when she read her poetry, it connected with, with the people in the audience. Mary Carr was, was showing us her glory. She was being herself, but she was being herself in our presence. And through the skill and the gifts that she has, she was able to communicate who she is to us. So that night, we experienced not just her work, but who she was, her creativity was put on display for us. So that night, I think it's appropriate to say that we saw her glory. Her glory is different from God's glory, but the mechanism is similar. It's somebody showing himself. It's somebody showing herself to us and, and exhibiting the traits that are theirs, and we get to experience that. That's glory. Another example, if you're not into poetry and if you tuned out for the last two minutes... Albert Pujols was in town a month ago. I'm going to try to hit both sides of, of your brain with these two analogies. This is great. When Pujols came uh, about a month ago, <clears throat> he, uh, I think it was the first time he returned to Bush Stadium. And, and before one of the games, he was asked for an autograph by a kid with Down syndrome. And instead of signing the kid's jersey, which is what the kid was asking for, Pujols took his jersey off, signed it, and gave it to the kid. And for parents of kids with special needs, that's a very sweet moment and, and a great experience to see that. Now, we know also that he and his family does a lot for the special needs community in the area and still do, even though he's been gone for several years. That was Pujols showing who he is. You see, that was a natural engagement for him because there's a whole context of his life being connected to the Down syndrome community. And of course, then he hit a home run in the game, and even though he was playing for the other team, you remember that, I don't know if you saw the highlights, but even though he was playing for the other team, the whole crowd stood up and cheered for him. 
Why? They saw his glory. That's who Pujols is. He hits home runs, and he helps kids with special needs. That's his glory. That's, that's his life. That's who he is. And, and by putting that on display in that way, we got to experience him. The point I'm making is that Jesus is praying here in this prayer before his crucifixion. He's praying that God would reveal himself to us, that God, God would show himself as he is, that we would see his glory, that he would be glorified in Christ, meaning that God would be God, that he would reveal who he is, his nature would be put on display. That's what Jesus is praying for. He wants, to, he wants the world, he wants the church to see God as he is and to be able, for us to be able to say we saw his glory. This is who God is. This is, this is his, he does his thing. He, he does things that God does. Now, of course, Jesus' practice of prayer, as recorded in our passage here, is, is completely in accordance with his teaching on prayer. When the disciples came to him and they asked him, Jesus, help us, teach us to pray. Help us understand how to pray. The first petition in that prayer, which is known as the Lord's Prayer, the first petition is, hallowed be your name. So let's glorify God. Let his name be, be lifted up. Let's focus on him. Now that's, that's how we're supposed to pray. And Jesus models this for us and he teaches us to do that. Now before I get into any of the specific petitions, which I will, I want to make this big application point. One thing we learn, if you don't learn anything else, one thing we definitely learn from this prayer is to pray in a God-centered, glorifying God way. Now, that's different from many of our prayers, isn't it? But Jesus says the way you should pray is you should, your first petition is, hallowed be your name. As you pray, you focus on who God is. You ask for his glory to be in your life. You ask for God to reveal himself the way he really is. So when you pray, are you praying for God to be glorified? For God to show himself? Through your struggles, through your sickness, it's not wrong to pray for healing. We should pray for healing. But the overarching prayer is not that God would heal us. The overarching prayer is that God would be glorified in whatever he does with us. Now you see that mature Christians pray that way. And they're able to handle suffering. They're able to handle all sorts of things in life differently because their concern is for God's glory. Because they want to see God reveal himself and be God in their lives and even through their lives. Okay, so let's look at specific petitions that, that Jesus has which all have to do with God's glory and I'll, I'll hopefully show you that. First, Jesus prays for himself. He starts by praying for himself. I actually think that's a good pattern. So I don't know how you pray and there are many systems and practices that all of us always have but I found that it's it's good for me after focusing on God himself to then bring myself to him and it may seem selfish may seem like well shouldn't I be praying for others before I pray for me yeah but you'll be able to pray better for others after you've prayed for yourself and so Jesus brings himself to his father and he prays for himself in verse 2 Jesus prays for the father to glorify the son so that the Son may glorify the Father. As he prepares for the cross, he prays that the cross would show God. This is the work that Jesus 
came to do when God became human. And so Jesus prays that in his death and resurrection, God's purposes would be accomplished. And when all is done, Jesus prays for his return to the Father. He looks forward to being with his Father again in verse 5. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Secondly, Jesus prays for God's glory to be in the church among his followers. So look at verse 11, for example. He prays, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. And then in verse 15, Jesus prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus is asking for the church not to be conformed to the world once he's gone, once he's absent. He prays that God would protect them from the enemy, that God would protect them from the evil one and the world, and so that God's glory would prevail over the world in the church. So what Jesus is after here is he knows he's leaving, and he knows that the temptation would be for his followers to simply accept what the world is teaching them. And so he prays that the church would be glorious, full of God's presence, full of God's revelation, and not conform to the world. And the contrast that he sets up here is between the world and God's word. This is a, this is a verse 14, for example. This is a relevant, relevant prayer request for us. As you pray for the church, pray for your church and other churches, we pray for another church every, every Sunday here. Part of our prayer should be that they would hold on to God's word, that we would hold on to God's word. Because if we don't, if we let go of his word, we will become just like the world, and we lose God's glory. You see, this is much more important than ideologies and moralities. What's at stake is God's glory. When the church shifts their attention away from God's word, as given to us in Scripture, as given to us in the gospel of Jesus, when we shift our attention away from it, we will naturally, naturally follow our own hearts and follow the world. And then, in our church, God is no longer revealed because he reveals himself through his word. So when we lose the word, we lose God's glory. And this is the context of verse 17, in which Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Familiar verse. It's just simple, simple request. Jesus is saying, sanctify them in the truth, meaning set them apart by their commitment to the truth. Make them so they believe your word more than they believe the world. You've given them your word, now keep them in it. Keep them in your name. Keep them in the faith. Keep them, keep them believing in you and believing and trusting in your revelation. For the church to be the church, for the church to reflect the glory of God, we need to be set apart by his word, by his revelation of who he is and what he's done. If we lose that, we lose God's glory. We lose God. Now look at verse 13. 
Jesus prays for his joy to be fulfilled in the church. So all of that has to do with who God is, right? His truth, now his joy. God is revealing himself in the church, and Jesus is praying that that glory would be there, would continue to grow. In verse 13, he prays for his joy to be fulfilled among his followers. Now, what is the joy he's talking about? Let me take you to verse 6. I'm jumping around the prayer, partly because I don't have time to exposit everything, but partly because Jesus is jumping around too. This is not a linear kind of argument, one after another point. Jesus is praying to the Father, and there's all sorts of thoughts that come in together, all united by the theme of God's glory. So in verse 6, Jesus is talking about his disciples, and he says, yours they were, so the Father's they were, and you gave them to me. And in verse 10, he says, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. This is what, what is happening here. The Father gave the Son a gift. The Father gave his people for Jesus to love and to save. And through Jesus' relationship with the redeemed people of God, God is glorified. So Jesus prays for the church to continue a joyful relationship with him. It's an amazing thought that Jesus delights in his people. That we are a gift the Father gave to him and that he loves it. Brothers and sisters, I want you to hear that because that may speak to the heart of your struggle this morning. You are a gift of God and to God. You are a gift of God and to God. Grapple with this, right? The world tells us you should feel good about yourself because of who you are, because you are great. And we go home and we look in the mirror and we say, this just isn't true. But the gospel takes attention away from you and says, don't feel good about yourself because you are great. But do feel good that God loves you. The gospel addresses the, the complexity of the human heart by giving us the right self-esteem, but not rooting it in ourselves. You are, God at some point decided to gift you to his son so he could care for you and love you. You are precious to him. You are loved and valued by God himself. You are placed right in the middle of the Trinitarian relationships. I mean, it's an amazing thought. Now imagine, this is an imperfect illustration, but let's connect with the, the emotions of that a little bit. Imagine you've had your eye on something you wanted to purchase, but it's expensive and you had to save up for it, and then you had to order it online from a country far, far away, and then you have to wait weeks for it to get to your house, so you're waiting and you're tracking the package, and then one day it shows up, and you open the box, and you bring it out, and your heart is filled with joy. This is an imperfect analogy of how God feels about you. You're a gift, and he loves it. Jesus loves that, that the Father gave you to him as a gift. 
Here's another aspect of God's glory in the church that Jesus prays for in verse 21. Jesus prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And also in verse 23, that they may become perfectly one. Now, how does this relate to God's glory? Well, God is one. There's a perfect unity in the Godhead. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit love each other perfectly. This is who God is. This is his nature. Now, this nature is revealed as his glory in the church through the unity of believers. Jesus prays that that that, that kind of glory, that unity of the Godhead will be reflected in the church. We should pray that our relationships, both among denominations and churches, that's fine, but also in the church with other believers that you know from other churches, that our relationships would mirror the relationships within the Trinity. Because that's the model. And, and what's interesting is that we pursue all sorts of other models for unity. We keep saying, well, let's just, let's just remove all these disagreements and just be one. And so unity becomes the goal. But scripturally, the goal is the glory of God. And as we focus on God, as we, to the degree that we focus on God, to the degree that we understand who he is and experience him, we naturally become one with other believers. So thirdly, so we've talked about Jesus praying for himself and then he's praying for God's glory in the church and now he's praying that the glory of God will spread through the church. This is verse 20 and 21. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So this unity, this display of God's glory in the church should lead to the world believing that Jesus was sent from the Father for the redemption of his people. And as the church experiences God's glory, as we trust God's word over what the world tells us, as we pursue the joy of our relationship with Christ, as we practice Trinity-like relationships among us, the glory of God spreads through us. Jesus envisioned more and more people becoming his followers based on what they see in the church, based on what they hear from his followers. Do you pray for the glory of God to spread through you into your community, your neighborhood, your school, your workplace, your city? Evangelism is about the glory of God. And the more you experience it, the more you're going to want to share it with other people. That's it. Evangelism is not to be motivated by guilt or duty. Evangelism is motivated by our very real experience of God. And as we experience him, that glory flows through us. And fourthly, Jesus also prays for the glory of God to be with the church forever. In verse 24, he prays, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me 
where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is an incredible request. Jesus asked that his followers would reunite with him and experience his glory forever. And this glory is the expression of the love between the Father and the Son. What Jesus is asking for is, is for us to be immersed in the love of God for eternity. In his great book on the Trinity, Michael Reeves asks, what was God doing before he created the world? Now, the theological answer to that question, of course, is he was creating hell for those who asked this question. But he writes, before God ever created, before he ever ruled the world, before anything else, this God was a father loving his son. That's what Jesus says, that they would experience the love that I had with you from before the foundation of the world. Before the world was created, the father loved his son. As far as we know, the only eternal activity of God is love between the persons of the Trinity. And this is what Jesus wants to have for us to have forever. I feel like I, I, I come back to this point often because I see it in my own heart and I see it in the church. For many of us, we make the gospel so small, right? And, and we present it in, in, in such a pathetic way because it's so small. Even avoiding eternal punishment is too small. And this is, you see that in Jesus' prayer. What is he praying? He's praying these big prayers. He's praying for God's glory to be revealed in the church, for God's glory to flow through the church and, and the whole world be affected by it so people would believe that he was sent from God. He's praying that we would have God's love forever, that we would be as close to the Trinity as we can possibly get still being creatures. I mean, these are his prayers. Does that reflect how you pray? These big prayers, this, this theological, cosmic prayers and if you pray like that, you also live like that, you see. Prayers are simply reflections of our lives. He prays, Jesus prays for this eternal experience of God's love for his people. Now, how does God answer this prayer? And I know I didn't do justice to the prayer, and I know this is a passage that needs to be dealt with in a series of sermons. I get that. But hopefully you got some of the flavor of what Jesus was praying for. You saw the focus on God's glory. You saw what he wants for the church to have. So how does God the Father answer Jesus' prayer? Jesus prayed for this glory. Now, how does God answer that prayer for his glory? Now, the key to understanding how God responds is found at the very beginning. Jesus starts his prayer. Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. All through the Gospel of John, Jesus said, the hour is not yet here. And so he wouldn't do something because the hour was not yet there. God's glory couldn't be revealed in that way because the hour was not, has not come yet. But now, the hour has come. Now, what is he talking about? What is the hour? 
the hour is the time when Jesus was going to be crucified and later he would rise from the dead. So the hour is this pivotal event in the revelation of God's glory to the world. And so when Jesus is praying for God's glory to be revealed, he's tying all of that with what was about to happen on the cross. The reason he's praying this prayer here is because he's about to go to the cross. And so he is praying to God, and he's saying, glorify me so I can glorify you. How's that going to happen? It's going to happen on the cross. He's praying for the church to have all these benefits, the joy of God, the unity of God, the love of God, the mission of God, the truth of God. All these benefits flow from the cross and the empty tomb. So in some way, it is right to say that, that God the Father answers the Son's prayer immediately on the cross and in the empty tomb. Because on the cross and in the empty tomb, God in Christ was glorified. On the cross and in the empty tomb, God was shown to be who he is. This was God in rare form. God in the zone. God taking his jersey off, signing it, and giving it to the kid. This was, this was God doing what God does. God hitting it out of the park. The cross and the empty tomb is the, the fireworks of God's glory. Now, God's glory can come to various degrees. You see, the brilliance could be blinding sometimes. But on the cross, this is the greatest expression of his glory because we see God as he is on the cross and in the empty tomb. Many years before Jesus went to the cross and before this prayer, a prophet wrote in Micah 7, verse 18. This is a, a poetic marveling at who God is, at his glory. Micah wrote, Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Micah is marveling at God's glory. He's experiencing God partially, a little bit. And that raises all sorts of questions in his mind. As he contemplates that God is a forgiving God, his question is, how does that happen that you are a God like that? What kind of God is this that, that would just pardon iniquity, that would forgive sin, that would pass over our transgressions? What is this God that delights in steadfast love, which is grace? What is this God that, that just freely gives forgiveness and blessings to his people? Now, Micah was marveling at God's glory. But on the cross, that glory was so strong, that revelation of who God is, so strong that the curtain was torn in two, the earth shook, the rocks split, and the dead came out to see what was happening. You remember that passage? It's a revelation of, this is the fireworks of God's brilliance. We see God as he is. God pardoned our iniquity and passed over our transgressions on the cross of Jesus. His blood has washed away our sin. The Father's wrath completely satisfied by the sacrifice of His Son. God's enemies became His friends because God delights in steadfast love or grace because that's who He is. That's His nature. He delights in steadfast love. Because He is who He is, we are reconciled to Him, brought into His family, seated at his table. When Jesus rose again, 
He gave life to all who believe his word. So our relationship with God, our experience of his love, the eternal Trinitarian love will never end for we will be with him forever because of the cross. Now in one sense, then we can say that Jesus' prayer was answered on the cross and in the empty tomb. God was glorified in the ultimate kind of way, showing us exactly what he's like, revealing his nature to us. But in another sense, Jesus' prayer is being answered progressively in the church. So as we grow in love, in unity and joy, as we are being transformed by his word, God is being glorified. He's revealing more and more of himself to us and through us. And this glory spreads through us, through the church, to others, and the kingdom grows. And one day when Jesus returns and his kingdom will be established forever, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It will happen. And it is happening now progressively as the implications of the cross and the empty tomb are being worked out in the church. God is being glorified. So even now, even today, during this time, as we gather and as we pursue his joy, as we look into his word, as we love each other, as we, we try to be united together, as we pray for other churches this morning, God is being glorified and the Father is answering the Son's requests in us and through us. I think that's amazing. I think that's amazing that we are a part of what God is doing. I'd like to finish with a challenge here. There's nothing more important than God's glory because there's nothing more important than God and to know God, to know what he's like, to have his glory, to, be, to experience him, to be in relationship with him. That's the most important thing. And not have that means not to be ourselves. It means not to see the world as we should, not to have God at its center. But we can only get God's glory, the most important thing, through Jesus. There's a peculiar passage in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, which says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you know his face? It's an amazing passage because there's a parallel between creation and new creation. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, which is, that's the revelation of his glory. He's creating this world to show us who he is. He doesn't need it, but he's expressing himself, his creativity, who he is in this world, which is why when we look at it, we think of God. And just as he did that, just as he said let light shine out of darkness. He gave that same light, that same glorious brilliance, now comes to us through the face of Jesus. And to know God means to know Jesus. So do you know his face? Do you know Jesus? Do you have the glory of God because you have Jesus? Let me finish with this story. I don't know if you know it or not. I heard it recently. I like it. 
It may be an old preaching trope that I was not aware of, so forgive me if it is. But a story is told about a beggar who struck up a friendship with a young man. He was sitting begging on the corner, and this man would pass every day, and they would talk, and the man was kind to him. And as they got to know each other, the beggar uh, learned that, that the man comes from a wealthy family, and in fact that his father owns an art gallery where he displays many famous paintings from his own private collection. Well, the beggar perhaps arrogantly said, well, let me draw you something here. Maybe your father would buy this, or maybe he would display it in his gallery. So he found a piece of paper and a pen, and he, he sketched his friend. Now, he wasn't very good, but it was important to his friend, and the young man took it with him and eventually did give, give it to his father. Several years later, the beggar found out that his friend passed away unexpectedly, and then his father, crushed with grief, several months later also passed away. The beggar also heard that all the famous paintings owned by, his, by the father were going to be auctioned off. And so he thought, well, maybe I'll go and see. Maybe they'll be selling the picture that I drew for him. And so he went, he found some more presentable clothes, went, sat in the back, and as luck would have it, the first picture up for auction is the very sketch that he made. And it's nicely framed, but still not a very good work of art. And so the auctioneer said, this is the first item, and nobody wants to bid on it. But he says, well, according to the will of the collector, unless we sell this first, we can't go on with the rest of the auction. And so the beggar bid. The only person who bid on it gave the few coins he had to purchase the sketch that he had made of his young friend years ago. And then as he did this, the other people started getting more excited and they were getting impatient. They said, let's get on with this. There's some real masterpieces here that we might bid on. And the auctioneer said, well, now the auction is over because according to the will of the collector, whoever got the sun gets everything else. Whoever got the sun gets everything else. Whoever gets Jesus, gets all the glory of God. Do you have the Son? If you have him by faith, you will have the glory of God. Jesus said in his prayer, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent.